Okay, hi everyone, welcome to episode number nine of the APIs Uncensored podcast. Lorinda, isn't it amazing? Nine episodes? How does that feel? It feels great, although, you know, we took like a three-month break, so I kind of thought we'd do nine. I thought we'd be up to a dozen by now. Yeah, you're right. We slowed down a little bit, I think, but I think we're kind of really hitting hitting the ground running now with our very prestigious guest here, John Sheehan. <laughs> hi, John. It's all been building up to you, John. Yes. Well, I'm I'm really sorry to hear that, <laughs> but thanks for having me anyway. Well, it's great to have you on uh, on this show on the podcast. Um, just before we kind of start talking about you, uh, the so there's some we have some rules that we kind of uh, talk about, but that we never break and really usually forget. So uh, <laughs> I don't know how that applies. To, well, actually, I do know how it applies to you, Lorenda, but. Uh, so we're not allowed to mention um, any of the products or technologies that we kind of, the companies that we work at, um, sell or promote or anything. And that doesn't go for you, John. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're free to talk about <laughs> Otherwise, it would be very generic, <laughs> this podcast. Yeah, it would be really boring. <laughs> really boring. So, talk about what time zones we're all in. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating subject. But... And, but um, uh, we're obviously, obviously not allowed to talk, speak, mention about, you know, well, I'm not going to say them. But if we do, uh, everyone else is allowed to make an annoying sound. Just so to... <laughs> so the, one, the one exception that we keep throwing out there, because it's almost impossible to get through an hour talking about APIs without mentioning Swagger in some way. So I just mentioned it. Okay, so we, Yeah, exactly. So we sort of had <laughs> Swagger off to the side as something we could talk about. Maybe now we have to call it the Open API description format. Well, yeah. if you talk about the Open API description format, nobody owns it. So exactly, exactly. So it's we that's what open. we need to. That's our new rule, Ula. We can't talk about Swagger, but we can talk about how do you say it? Do you OADF? say ODF? ODF? OADF. So OADF. Yeah. So I mean, so th this is one of the biggest discussions in that group. Uh, is is what? Not everyone is happy with that name. I know we had open API format, which was OAF, uh, which <laughs> could, we send you, could you send me your OAF files? I know it just didn't work out, uh, so we didn't, we didn't go down that route. Um, but we'll see. So it's, it's actually uh, still something that we're kind of debating is what name we're going to go with. But we'll say OADF for now because that's what's in the charter. Okay. Uh, I hope we've... Uh, I'm glad we've settled that. Yes, yeah. we settled that. Such <laughs> relief. So now let's talk about something more interesting and important, uh, which is you, John. John, uh, I mean, you've been uh, very uh, visible and active in the API space for some years now, but uh, and I'm sure most people know who you are. But for those who are unfortunate not to, please uh, tell us who you are, who are you and what are you up to. Uh, so. I run a company that makes API tools whose name I won't mention since that's against the rules. Oh, you're allowed to. No, you can mention it. <laughs> I wanted to see if I could go a whole hour without saying the name of the company. That Would that be a feat? Like, that would be a feat. Definitely. That, would that would be, be a feat. That would be the longest waking hour that I have been awake in the past five years where I have not said something about the company I was working for. Um, uh, I started a company uh, called RunScope. We make API performance monitoring tools, so a suite of tools for uh, verifying that your APIs are up and working properly, and that's the extent of the pitch on that. Uh, you know, prior to RunScope, I was working on APIs as platform lead at IFT, if this and that, you know, working with hardware manufacturer, manufacturers uh, and media companies and API providers to get channels created on IFT. 
And then prior to that, I spent two years at Twilio as uh, the first developer evangelist and the developer evangelism uh, team lead and a product manager for developer experience. Uh, so I've been basically all in on APIs now since about 2008 or 9. Uh, I created a library called REST Sharp back in 2000, I think it was 2009, uh, that was uh, for .NET uh, working with APIs. And ever since, basically since that project started, that's all I've been working on. Oh, wow. Well, so how's REST Sharp going? Is that still active? Is it on GitHub or is that, is it, has it kind of been superseded by Microsoft things or any other libraries? Uh, so both. So uh, if you're starting today, you should absolutely use the built-in libraries that come with .NET. They are way better than they were uh, in 2009. Uh, but it is still active. Uh, I think it's got over, over 3,000 GitHub stars now, and it's on its third generation of oh, maintainers. Wow. Uh, wow. But there are uh, pretty significant, you know, applications that have, were using it for a long time. I know GitHub for Windows was using it for a long time, and uh, I think it's Source Gear by uh, Atlassian or Bitbucket was using it for a long time, uh, and a bunch of others. Uh, it seems to every once in a while it crop up, and uh, I hear about somebody using it. Uh, you know, we have a RunScope customer who makes um, uh, the software, the app that lets you pay for your parking meter from your smartphone, mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out they use ResSharp. So. Oh, wow. Uh, they're a two-time uh, John Sheehan production uh, con consumer. <laughs> uh, they are your biggest fans. They really are. Uh, <laughs> but every time I pay for my parking in San Francisco, I get to use RunScope and ResSharp, and it's sort oh of Oh, my a, God, it's so meta. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Wow. So, John, what is your role with ResSharp these days? I mean, you said you've got a bunch of maintainers. Do you, are you still sort of managing the whole project? Do you um, review every pull request? My role is essentially a 301 redirect to the GitHub issues page. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I haven't written .NET now in, in, in quite a while. Um, I switched to mostly doing Python uh, right around, let's see, it would be three and a half years ago. Uh, you know, as I was, you know, moving from Twilio to Ift, in between there I started working on some side projects. Uh, API jobs, API change log, API digest, that sort of stuff. And I started wanting to learn Python. So I haven't really written any .NET in, in quite a long time. So uh, I am not the best person to be answering <laughs> questions about REST Sharp. In fact, I don't know that I could write REST Sharp code um, without referring to the uh, non-existent docs that I never wrote. So um, <laughs> uh, uh, thankfully, though, some really, like, you know, great motivated people have taken it over, and and when I point people in that direction, they they get uh, the help that they need. Cool. So, um, so a little bit fast forward to RunScope. So that's been running now for how many years? Three, four years, or is it? You said five, or so. Uh, right around this time, about three years ago, was when uh, my co-founder and I were finally uh, out of our jobs, quit our jobs, and we're starting to uh, uh, ramp up to working on it full time. So I think. January 1st is our technical uh, official start date, uh, but this is basically the, uh, you know, we were just about to get going. We had already been fundraising for a little while, uh, and we but we hadn't had a product yet, and uh, it's actually, I don't know, people tell me this is interesting, maybe it's not, but uh, we actually basically raised money with no product. We sort of wrote the first version of RunScope uh, in about three weeks, starting on December 26, 2012, oh, wow. uh, and, and so... Uh, the traffic inspector as it exists today is not really that significantly different from that what we wrote in that first three weeks. If you look at my GitHub commit logs, I wrote more code in three weeks than uh, any other time in my career. And then, you know, we've added a lot of features. We've obviously scaled it. We've, you know, um, 
really sort of matured that that product. Uh, but you know, the core of what we started Runscope with and and what got us our seed round was really concentrated in just a couple weeks uh, about three years ago. So. Uh, uh, yeah, so it it feels like a lot longer though. I don't know if you're familiar with startup time, but um, yes, it feels like it's been a lifetime uh, working on this already. It's weird because it goes fast and slow all at the same time. It feels like it's been forever, but that three years ago also feels like it was just yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, you guys have gotten so much traction in the last three years. I, I have a question for you. You said that you know you you did a lot of coding on the original, right? As you were getting ready to get your seed round. Um, are you still coding? Do you still put <laughs> hands on coding? Um, well, I like to say I mostly make uh, sheets and slides now. <laughs> That's basically what I spend my time doing, spreadsheets and uh, Keynote. Uh, I'm very good at both of those things, <laughs> way better than I used to be. Um, I, I do like to keep coding, right? Like, So I obviously want to, like, I, I think as sort of the de facto, we don't have any product managers. So everyone here sort of has to act like a product manager, but as sort of the de facto head of product, if I'm, if I'm not writing code or working with APIs, I'm probably not going to make very good uh, API products. And so I do try to, you know, get at it whenever I can. Uh, the types of things that I tackle now tend to be uh, boring billing systems or Salesforce integrations, uh, which really helps with uh, API debugging tools, by the way, uh, working with the Salesforce API. Uh, and... Um, you know that sort of thing where, you know, our our main product engineers are focused on you know what's the next feature that's going to you know get the next you know tens of thousands of developers to sign up and uh, I can take care of the boring billing work uh, and free them up to to focus on that sort of stuff. So I, I do tr- I do try to code. It's not nearly as much as I'd like, but I haven't stopped completely yet. Okay. So uh, we've I mean we um, I wanted to go back a little bit. I mean we. As you know, we also uh, have been, I mean, at least, uh, what am I trying to say here? So, Lorinda and I, we've, talk, we've been talking about API monitoring for, for quite some time, and, uh, and it, it was initially kind of hard to kind of uh, get acceptance for that, that it was really necessary, especially we've talked about monitoring third-party APIs, and, you know, we had this whole safe sex thing going on. It was the first API Strat conference, and I think it was in New York, right? Uh, and, and it was initially... Oh, wait, I need to clarify that, Ula. Ula, Ula. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> you, you, you just kind of... You just kind of uh, the phrasing is important here. <laughs> okay. Ula and I didn't have a safe sex thing going on. Uh, we, we had a talk that we did. Oh, oh now I remember. You had, yeah, safe sex talk with third-party yeah. APIs. Uh, that was it. There's usually uh, a talk involved. There's usually a talk. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty short talk. But anyway, so uh, I was thinking just... It was. Do you, have you seen that kind of a mature, what I was getting at uh, a change of maturity with your users and customers about the necessity of monitoring APIs? Uh, it's just about to me. It's it's always it's been similar to kind of testing. Is you know when you're when something is new and shiny and uh, and you're learning and you're building something, maybe testing isn't very high on your list. But when, once it starts to become mission critical or whatever, you kind of go back and say, okay, we need to start automating tests and. I'm wondering, I mean, is that something you, is there a similar motion you see around people at, at building APIs, public APIs, and businesses around them, and, and the need for monitoring uh, around that? Or you... Sure. So, I mean, to your credit, you, you know, you guys were really on top of it really early on when, when you know, you were talking to API Strat in New York. I think we closed our seed round, like, while I was at that event. So, like, we didn't exist really as a thing yet, right? And you guys were already talking about it. And it was, an, it was another uh, 
almost 18 months before I think we had the words API monitoring on our website. <laughs> so we, we were not really um, uh, in tune to that until our customers demanded it from us, right? So you say, like, you know, have we seen an increased need for it? Well, the only reason our monitoring product exists is because our customers were banging down our door saying, hey, you know, you great debugging tools, now let me know if this call fails again. Uh, and then, you know, that's where we sort of went down the testing route. And then once we had tests and there was a schedule feature, which was basically an afterthought mm. for us when we first launched it, you know, we launched our testing product. We didn't have, we had a test ran from one single location, and I think the max schedule was maybe five minutes, right? Mm. So, but people would immediately go, oh, I want this from around the world, and I want it on a minutely schedule. We're like, oh, but that sounds more like monitoring, but we don't really know anything about monitoring. So we weren't really sure. So right, we just kept listening to customers and sort of, you know, we added the multiple locations and we added the finer grain schedules and we added a bunch of other monitoring tools. And if you actually look at our usage graph, right about the time we added the multiple locations, our usage, like, turns straight up. I mean, it's like a classic hockey stick. Oh, wow. I mean, we, were, we were doing fine along the way. And then once it was, it was like, no, okay, monitoring's a thing. We have a good product for it. It's starting to resonate with customers. They're starting to find us specifically for that. I mean, it just it took off like a rocket after that. And um, I think since that moment, we've averaged 40% month-over-month test run growth. So every month we do another, you know, basically 40%, 40%, 40%. Uh, and... I, like the graph is is my fav one of our, my favorite graphs that we you know we we track internally, which is how many test runs uh, people are running every day. And I think we just crossed the three million uh, per day mark, which is awesome. And and it just shows that there is a really strong need for it. Uh, and maybe we were a little bit later to the game than some other people, but uh, I I think the product is resonating with people. Um, the th the thing about API monitoring specifically though is that most of the people. I think knew that API monitoring was important, but they didn't think about it solely in the, for the things that were specific to the API, right? So we hear a lot of people who use an APM tool or just use a generic, you know, uptime monitoring tool or, you know, a simple metric system to try to, you know, so-called monitor their APIs. And you can probably get a pretty good, at least, performance picture of how individual endpoints or hosts or APIs are 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 functioning from a speed perspective. But the big thing that we felt it was lacking was the idea that uh, monitoring of APIs should take into account the functionality of the APIs, not just the responsiveness. Mm -hmm. And so being able to monitor entire workflows or aggregating across multiple APIs or even including your OAuth workflows and all of your auth stuff uh, and considering the performance impact of all that because as far as your apps are concerned, it's not just how responsive was the endpoint. was did I get the right data back? Because if you get the wrong data back, it's arguably a worse user experience than just the API being down. Like, uh, we used to have this problem occasionally at IFT where a partner API would suddenly be returning completely incorrect data, and that would get surfaced in an email alert to somebody, and they immediately would lose trust in IFT when that happened, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if that alert never triggered because the API was down, they would no, nobody would have known the difference, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, you know, we, we very much wanted to focus on this, uh, you know, we sort of call it correctness or data validation as well, and really harp on the functionality thing. Because uh, APIs are really unique when it comes to testing and monitoring, because in production, you can actually do integration-type tests against live endpoints. You can't really do that with code, right? If you wrote a bunch of 
unit testing or integration testing code, you can't just ship that up to production and run that on an ongoing basis in your production environment, right? It's it doesn't work that way, but because the service boundaries are so nice and clean and, and uh, services are so self-contained, you can actually do functional monitoring. And I think that's really what's unique about API monitoring compared to the you know the traditional monitoring uh, approaches that people have taken. Yeah, that's a good point. I think yeah. uh, we've seen and that. I, 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 oh, I was just going to say, I, I think that was something that... Um, uh, that Ula and I were talking about, like he said, you know, we've been talking about it for years. Uh, and particularly, we've been trying, I think we, we spent a lot of time trying to educate people that API monitoring was not just up-down monitoring. Um, it's, it's important to actually understand the workflows that matter to you and uh, understand the data that you expect to get back. And I think, um, you know, it's... I, honestly, it was great to see the API monitoring landscape open, and you guys were a big player in that, to, to actually see it get traction and have people care about it. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, um, it took a while for it to really build up any momentum in the market, but um, yeah, well, I, I mean, think, you know, to, I mean, there are success points that we, it's really important. Yeah, to your credit, uh, John, I mean, although we were talking about it, we never managed to make it as, as fun and cool as, as you did. <laughs> so, so I mean, uh, there's no, I think that's, I mean, which is uh, great for, for the general, I mean, um, uh, um, awareness around a API monitoring, I think is much thanks to kind of uh, both, both you, you, I mean, your pers personal uh, efforts, but also to run scope at large. And I think it, it's, 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 it's interesting to see like the story you tell is that you ramped up uh, one and a half years of more focusing on developers and I'm guessing that you kind of built trust with them with your debugging tools and then when they started to grow into the need of monitoring and you kind of were really quick at adopting and, and, and providing that for them, you were like, they already had trusted you and it was natural for them to continue using your, your offering or your platform for that. So I think you did, you did a great job of kind of um, segueing over into that market. Well, uh, I think you're the first person that said "cool" and API monitoring in the same sentence. So we should we should mark that note in history. Uh, uh, that's good. Uh, yeah, I mean that that was definitely the goal, right? The goal was always every tool should you know uh, increase the trust relationship that we have with our customers. That we're going to give them reliable, accurate uh, information and visibility into their their uh, uh, API problems, and then you know that will allow us to do more and more sort of um, uh, advanced, you know, advanced stuff that requires that trust level. Like, uh, if, you know, we were to get into our long-term vision at RunScope, if we had, you know, if I came into your company tomorrow and said, hey, we want to do this, you would, you would laugh at me. You would say, that's completely crazy. We would never give you access to that data or, you know, you know whatever other concerns they have. But, you know, over five years, if we ramp up that level and we have these these long-term relationships with customers, you know, they trust that we can deliver on that and we're going to do it in a secure, reliable uh, uh, fashion. So um, it's it's interesting to hear you you recognize that from the outside because I don't know that anybody has ever actually relayed that back to me without me saying it to them first. So There you go. <laughs> so, and the other thing, I guess, I mean, one of the things you touched upon is... is is maybe that I mean, and I think a challenge. I think you have a, a, a tool there. Is a lot of, initially, I think when people approached API monitoring, it was maybe for internal APIs, and um, and there was always this this disconnect. How can we monitor them from the outside? And I think you you already have some proxy reverse proxy or something to solve that, right? Am I correct? Or yeah, so we have an an agent.
agent that you can install uh, on any host that you control, and then anything that's on the same network as that host, we can then see from the cloud. So uh, it's not quite a reverse proxy. It's actually just a simple oh, okay. uh, uh, worker. It pulls for work and then executes the request and sends the results back up to our main uh, AWS cluster for processing and and uh, uh, basically managing the, the test run itself. Uh, the agent itself doesn't do any of the assertion logic or data extraction or any of that. All it does is execute HTTP requests and then send them back up for processing. So it actually lets us distribute work really nicely and, and scale really yeah. easily. Do you, have you met like um, skepticism from IT departments to kind of install that agent or do, you, do you, or do you see changes in the attitude to doing, to kind of letting people into their, their network, letting your tools into their network like that? Yeah, there's definitely skepticism. I think the agent doesn't tend to be the problem. It's more the, okay, that's great that we can see that data, but we never want it to leave our our firewall, basically our firewalled environment, right? Uh, if you if you have a compliance scenario, um, you know, financial services or healthcare, you know, it's a little trickier to send your data up to the cloud without, you know, getting into a, you know, a BAA agreement for HIPAA or whatever else. Uh, so, so we get skepticism there. As far as the agent's concerned, it's not externally addressable, and, you know, we will willingly open up the source to those agents, to anyone who wants to see them. And it's actually the exact same sort of hardened agent that we run in our cloud location. So we're not, we don't get a lot of pushback on that part because there's no logic in there. Mm. It's more about where the data is stored. Um, I think long term, we'll probably find more creative ways uh, to get people uh, uh, ways that they can store data in, in a place that we can't really access it, mm. uh, but gives them the full suite of RunScope tools. So it's probably not going to be a full on-prem thing. If anybody's getting excited, please don't email me asking for that. But uh, you know, some sort of hybrid approach that keeps your data in a place where uh, it meets your compliance requirements, but also allows us to offer the, the kind of service that, we're, that we want to offer. OK, cool. Uh, and I guess I, you know, having the background I have, I have to ask about uh, if people, if do you see need for monitoring of SOAP APIs <laughs> at all, <laughs> <laughs> both both like internally or externally? I mean, we, I mean, just some for, for legacy reasons, I'm guessing like Salesforce and Amazon, et cetera, still have their, their old whistles hanging around. And those are probably well, well embedded in certain infrastructures. But I'm guessing very few new pe people and, you know, the, uh, who are in the right state of mind would, would adopt SOAP at this point. But, but as far as we know, I mean, still internally, people are still like rolling out their SOA architectures that they decided on five years ago, which kind of is very <laughs> much in line with, so with SOAP and WS Death Star standards, et cetera. Is that something you, you encounter at all? Or is it, do you, have you seen people moving, really just leaving that behind, behind them or leaving it to other departments? Uh, we did. We definitely see some SOAP uh, APIs come across. Still, you know, we were. We didn't. We sort of really decidedly said, you know, we're going to do any. We're going to support anything that's HTTP. But uh, you know, all of the tools are very focused on you know simpler, you know, more more so-called RESTful APIs, right? So the JSON and and simpler API uh, XML styles. But you can definitely make SOAP calls within RunScope. We have plenty of customers doing that. Uh, I've got some roadmap items I'm still trying to sort of convince the team to, to focus on that might make it a little bit easier, you know, something like WSDL import uh, and a better, like we kind of make people rely on a sort of a generic XML parser, but putting in like a real SOAP parser mm. uh, would help a lot with that. So, uh, you know, we have the, the platform there to add that on top of it, uh, and we definitely see it. Um, what's interesting, when, the first, when we first launched uh, RunScope, uh, a friend of mine goes, oh, this reminds me of SoapScope. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I ne I've never heard of SoapScope. And so I went and looked it up, 
But now, if SoapUI and RunScope were ever to, to merge, we could be SoapScope. We could be SoapScope again. That was Mind Reef. Wow, that was a, yeah. Wow, that, that's a blast from the past. That was actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the whole, that whole soap part, the whole soap part of that product name is really working for us. <laughs> You're not allowed to say SoapUI. <laughs> yes, it really is. Uh, oh well. Okay. Awesome. So, um, uh, so anything else? So I think uh, I'd like to kind of uh, just uh, since time is valuable and unfortunately short, start talking about a little bit about webhooks. But uh, is there anything else like you'd like to share or anything you'd like to call out about what you're up to uh, with with Runscope or you know think our listeners should be aware of? Um, I think the only other thing I'd mention is we, we just launched uh, about a month ago a real-time uh, uh, monitoring tool, so you can watch, uh, you know, key transactions live as they happen and set up basically very similar criteria to uh, one of our API tests and then get alerts to your team uh, when those calls fail. So, you know, we, we use it to monitor basically our calls or our payment provider or other external services uh, that we can't really replicate through monitoring or testing, and we get really great notifications when those calls fail so that we can react to those. So if you're interested in real-time monitoring, uh, go to runscope.com and, and look for live traffic alerts. That, that, is that, how does that work? Is that through, are you proxying, or is it an agent, or how, how do you kind of... What, what, yep. So there's you know a couple different ways you can get traffic in. Uh, the easiest way is definitely using our global traffic gateways. You know we run them from 12 locations around the world, so you get low latency no matter where you're at. Uh, we also have an on-premise version of that as well, so you can run that within your infrastructure. Uh, but then we also uh, you can ingest data via the API. So if you want to write an integration with your API management tool or any other sort of system that generates HTTP requests and responses, you can uh, funnel that in via our API and then uh, get the same uh, alerting criteria on it. So we 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 like our global gateway because it's uh, the lowest friction way to get traffic in, but we're not necessarily uh, tied to that long term. We want to be able to get traffic from everywhere, and I think we're going to be working on more uh, integrations with other tools for getting that data into that uh, alerting system. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing, and good luck with that. Um, uh, Lorinda, any, do you have any other questions for John before we move on? Uh, just one question, John. So I can see your video, which our listening audience cannot see, but it looks to me like you are drinking from one of the controversial Starbucks cups. <laughs> is this your news item? Is, that this your, is this your war on Christmas? You want to know why I drink from a Starbucks cup? Because yes, more than this, little la this little label means I did not have to wait in line, and I hate waiting in lines. So when I get off the train, I put my online order in, I walk into the store, I grab my coffee, and I go. So it's really just an optimization more than anything else because uh, I don't really care what it tastes like as long as it has caffeine in it. <laughs> and you don't care what the cup says, and I appreciate that. So It's red okay. and green. It's red and green. How could it I not know. be any more Christmassy? I know. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you very much. Okay, it has a it. mermaid on it. Like, Are people more concerned that it doesn't have a Christmas tree on it when it has a mermaid, mermaid. on it? Mermaids don't exist. They're not real. Hey, I'm a believer. Wait. How can you say that? Okay, say that. I mean, like Santa is is real, right? So, okay. <laughs> okay. You must have kids. Yeah. Yes, I do. So, um, okay, cool. So, uh, so you did meant you did say alerts at some point, and uh, alerts kind of makes me think of webhooks. Uh, so, I think uh, we did want to talk a little bit more webhooks. It's something that I think it's interesting when you suggested it as a topic because, you know, with looking at webhooks with a technical. I, it's, well, it's just a callback, you know, what's the big deal? 
Um, uh, but and I think that's what how many developers approach it. But I also think that's maybe how many developers would have approached APIs. You know, it's just you know some JSON or HTTP. What's the big deal? So, but I think there's a much bigger story to tell around webhooks, and I think um, because it enables a, a kind of integration that uh, is, I think maybe not all people have on the top of of of, of their mind initially. What, what are your thoughts around that, John? Uh, it's funny when you say it's just a callback because I, I don't think you like I think that that is the exact attitude that leads to very bad webhook implementations. Yeah. So you know at some point I had this I don't know I don't want to call it an epiphany it's not quite at that level but a realization that uh, uh, webhooks uh, for if anybody's not familiar just real quick webhooks are basically asynchronous callbacks that a API provider will make to your server when something happens so that you don't have to pull the API repeatedly over and over again uh, so it makes it easier to find out about things that happen at indeterminate times in the future so um, uh, you know if you look at like Twilio has a very popular webhooks integration. Stripe, SendGrid, basically every big API. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> basically every big API provider that wants to notify you about something, you know, has a webhooks implementation. So the the thing is about webhooks, though, is that it's still an API, and you actually, as a provider, you get to define it. You get to create the schema. You get to define the interfaces, but then you leave the implementation of it up to every arbitrary developer in the world, right? It's the, like the one API that you can design, but you can't control how it actually behaves because you've, you've delegated the, the handling of those requests to some, again, arbitrary third party. And so you're, re, you're relying on the fact that every developer out there, one, can spin up a server, two, uh, can properly you know, uh, handle the, the, the data that you're sending it, uh, that's parsing properly, three, you can respond properly with the data that you're, you're expecting back, uh, and that all of the pieces in the stack sort of support that, that the web server doesn't parse, you know, incoming data differently than the other other web servers out there, you know, Nginx versus Apache versus whatever else, that the, the language or framework doesn't make any sort of modifications to the incoming request or response, that those are consistent across uh, everything else. So as much as HTTP and, you know, uh, JSON give us really good standard interfaces, there's a lot more that goes into serving a response than just making sure you got some properly structured JSON. And so that's what I find really fascinating about webhooks is that you get to do all the work on the design and then you send that out for implementation to every developer in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you, I've learned anything about developers, it's that we don't really do things consistently very well. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I think what that, <coughs> excuse me, what that leads to is that uh, Webhooks are great for cutting down on the amount of polling and the amount of infrastructure uh, developers have to write to get updates, uh, but it puts a whole new set of problems into their court uh, in order to get that value. Mm. And that's what I think really, from a from a uh, architectural perspective, really you know, like piques my curiosity is like this sort of relationship where you designed the API but you didn't implement it. So I mean, obviously, uh, I'm thinking of you know, in in especially in these cases, when you define your webhook, you'd want to use some you know API description language uh, to kind of at least give the implementing developer a little bit more details on, on on um, uh, you know the kind of data that goes in and out, and maybe some other I don't know what other rules, but I'm thinking here like like what you said, maybe the the, the language that we have today, Swagger, Raml, etc. Are they maybe they're insufficient for kind of really providing a uh, or uh, you know a, a definition that um, uh, doesn't 
give uh, the, the implementing developer uh, wiggle room to kind of, you know, where there's room for interpretation. So you you basically want to narrow down even more and instead of just saying uh, uh, in your definition, saying this is what I throw in and this is what I expect out from a, a structure point of view, you may even want to start adding some more rules to that, uh, you know, like saying, like an assertion basically saying, you know, if I send this out, if I send this in, this is what I expect out, uh, not just at a, at a format level, but as a, at the actual values level. Uh, and you could also, you know, add, meta, uh, add metadata about response times or, you know, whatever other things. Is, does that resonate or does that, does that make sense or, do, or, or how, how, in this context? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I'd say historically I'm not the biggest uh, evangelist for formats. I'm not against them, but I'm not also out promoting them. But in this case, like, having, you know, a Swagger document uh, for, you know, what a webhook uh, producer is going to send me would actually be very useful. Because, like, uh, you know, a lot of the docs are sort of under underdone. They're not quite fully baked, basically. Uh, people don't really give them the same treatment level that they do their main API docs, which it should be the opposite. They need way more documentation, begin, because you're leaving the implementation up to an arbitrary party, and they need way more information to know how to implement the, the proper responses for that. So, you know, more concrete definitions on these would absolutely help, because if you look at the developer experience for uh, integrating with a new webhook, it generally goes like this. You set up a server, uh, you get the URL for that server, and you go to the API provider, and you put it in their webhook callback box, and then you're like, okay, now I need to make something happen that's going to call this server. Mm -hmm. And so you manage to find a way to create the right event to get the thing going to your server, and then nothing happens. That's basically the first version of this. And then you're like, well, why did nothing happen? And then no one knows because none of the providers are really providing... Uh, uh, you know, logging facilities or inspection on these sort of webhooks that are going out. So then you go to your server logs, and you're like, oh, looks like I returned a 500. You make some code changes. You push it up. You go back. You try to generate that event again. And it's basically guess and check with something that's almost completely invisible, right? So this is this is like the how most webhook provider experiences are. In fact, I care a lot about webhooks, and I'm ashamed to admit that this is basically <laughs> how our webhook experience works. And uh, uh, thankfully, we have really great debugging tools we can point people to, but they should be integrated completely in on their own. But that's I, I digress. We'll get that fixed. Uh, but essentially, you know, that that's the experience, right? Is that uh, I'm trying to implement uh, a server to this spec. I can't actually see it. I can't easily generate test data. I can't actually see logs from both sides of this this uh, transaction. And so you end up doing this guess and check. And so anything that helps sort of remove the amount of ambiguity over how to implement that would definitely be useful. So. Uh, if you look at the top tier API providers, what they're doing is they're starting to add, uh, they all have logging and basically debuggers built into their dashboards. Uh, Twilio has a great one, Clearbit has a great one, Stripe has a great one. Uh, and what these do is essentially show you all of the requests that were made to your server and the exact response your server gave back. Uh, they allow you to specify multiple URLs so that you can put in a debugging URL. Uh, some of them, uh, like use our, we have a community site called Request Bin, which is really popular. It's basically you make requests to it, it shows you which request you sent. That's the extent of it. So if you can have multiple webhook URLs, you can add that in. You can all see, sort of mirror the, the request to see what was actually getting sent if your server's not uh, responding properly. Uh, a lot of them point people to us to use our debugging proxy to put it in the middle there uh, so you can actually see what's going back and forth as well. So, uh, like, raising the visibility is definitely definitely helps as well with, the, with these kinds of problems. And then the other big one is... Uh, uh, 
being able to generate essentially test events, right? So mm -hmm. GitHub, if you add a new service hook, the first button there is send a sample, right? Mm -hmm. And that means you don't have to go in and start making dummy commits into your GitHub repos in order to generate a webhook. You can actually get one uh, sent to you right away so it makes it easier, it sort of tightens that feedback loop. So, uh, you know, these are all things that, you know, if you flip the, flip the equation and you go back to I'm making an API call to, you, to, to your API, uh, like I have all the visibility because I control the client and I can see what was sent, what I got back. But when in the webhooks case, you don't have that. And so what webhook providers need to do is consider that and actually try to give people all of the information they would have as if they were the client calling this server. Yeah, it's like mocking in the reverse in, in a way, uh, like like you said. So you, you'd want, just like you said, like GitHub uh, has the possibility to send arbitrary events. You could have. Uh, uh, you want more elaborate dashboards or, or tools to allow you to simulate those hooks back to you so you can kind of look at them on, on your end. But you're totally right. It, it's really hard to, uh, it, it's a pretty messy thing to debug and to work work with just because of that asynchronous nature. Uh, but um, also thing, I mean, many of, just like GitHub, I don't, uh, many of them don't actually re accept a response, right, or really process anything back. It's more that they're notifying you of something, and then what you do with it, it's up to you. But I'm, I'm sure there are a bunch of webhooks which actually kind of, uh, you know, ask you for data or query you for something. Sure. I think many of the marketplace integrations for or work like that, basically, if you want to integrate with some store or something. So most of them at the baseline require, uh, the like, there is a hard requirement on the response that you get, like, a 200-class status code, right? So mm -hmm. Stripe, if it gets anything other than a 200 or 201, whatever, any anything in the 200 class, it will schedule that webhook to be retried, right? It just mm -hmm. keeps going until you get a 200. Uh, and so uh, a lot of people actually miss this because you want, you, you're you wondering, why am I getting duplicate events? Well, you didn't actually realize that your server was returning a 500 or a 400 or 404. Uh, you know, a lot of people put their webhook provider or listeners on the same uh, application as their web servers, and if you have automatic CSRF protection on your your application, uh, and the webhook's not sending a CSRF token, but it's posting, then you'll get a 400, right? And you didn't you you didn't see that necessarily if it wasn't exposed. And now you start getting these retries, and you get duplicate events. And so at a baseline, that tends to be like the minimum requirement for a response. Uh, my my favorite one, and and sort of what got me hooked on hooked on webhooks. I didn't think about that, but. Uh, what got me into webhooks was that Twilio, when they send you a webhook, says, hey, here's a new SMS message, here's the text of it, they actually expect a response back if you want to reply to that message. So you can actually, in your response to that webhook event, uh, return XML that says, uh, uh, you know, send this message back. But if you don't want to send a message, you can't actually just have a blank body. You actually have to send a well-formed XML document with an empty response object in it. And that was actually something that really got a lot of customers because what they were expecting is like, oh, I didn't want to respond, so I just didn't do anything. But the, Twilio was actually sort of expecting that sort of acknowledgement or that act, you know, response to, that explicitly said you did not want to reply to it. And so, uh, uh, like, that's that's on the other end of the spectrum where there's a very fixed schema that's expected back. But that makes it, again, more two-way. And, the, you know, the benefits of that are obviously that you don't have to make a separate API call to actually return that message. But even still, you know, that always sort of surprised people uh, that if you didn't specify a content type and you had an empty body, that that was not considered a valid response. I think they've since fixed that because they their support team probably got, <laughs> got tired of... requests, yeah. Yeah, tired of trying to, to troubleshoot that one. So... Uh, uh, 
I'm, I'm sorry I have to mention microservices here as well. So uh, I, I was thinking one one aspect where this has come up, at least you know, from our, our end, and I think I was going to ask you because you, you, uh, the talks you've been giving, you've been talking a little bit about your internal uh, infrastructure and, and all the microservices you built, and you had you built this tool for deploying, et cetera. I don't remember the name. Um, but uh, and we're kind of, uh, uh, I mean, we're obviously, we're, we were doing similar stuff for some of our solutions. And we're also starting to use like webhooks between microservices, basically notifying each other of things going on. And there's there's a bit of a debate if that kind of over time becomes hard to manage. It's hard to know who's calling who and when and why. And uh, as those microservices evolve, it just becomes extremely um, uh, unmanageable. Is is that something? Do you can you relate to that, or is, or are we just confused on our end? No, I, I mean absolutely, we can relate to that. Um, you know, we haven't. I've been tempted to sort of spec out and implement sort of an internal eventing messaging system that uses, uh, you know, webhook basically callback subscriptions uh, between services instead of some other sort of message queue or messaging system, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because what we what we're trying to avoid is a centralized message hub, basically. You know, I, I think one of the yeah the ESB model or you know even like if you look at some of these microservices frameworks that are out there, they're basically like, yep, drop this giant you know, a uh, broker in the middle of your microservices architecture, and now look at all these benefits you get. Yeah, you only just traded it off for a single point of failure and um, another huge dependency for all these services. So, um, you know, we wanted to let services independently talk to each other in an asynchronous fashion. Now, for the most part right now, we've gotten around that by uh, using different queuing systems or even just, like, uh, using long polling where we actually just hold the connection open because it, internally it's not very expensive to do so, and the timeline for an event coming back is not too long, right? So we know that connection is not going to be open forever. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one strategy we've done around it, but I've, we've definitely considered the sort of every service can produce events and uh, maintain a list of subscriptions for every other service that wants to be notified on those events. Um, the trick that one of the reasons we haven't done this yet is because the tooling that's out there actually does not really help you trace these dependency graphs uh, across a lot of services yet. So, you know, maybe someday this is something we help solve. We'd love to, you know, be involved in, in solving that problem. But as an example, we've got an identity system which tracks all our users and organizations and everything. We have a billing system that just basically traps subscription information. So if those two want to talk to each other, uh, asynchronously, there's a very high probability that our billing system is actually going to look up more information from the identity system as part of an event that may have been sourced from the identity system, mm -hmm. right? And so, if you don't get your payloads designed correctly to cut down this back and forth, you can barely, barely, or you can very easily introduce, uh, you know, essentially circular dependencies. Now, most web servers are multi-threaded and they can serve multiple requests at the same time. It makes local dev very difficult if your servers locally are not mm -hmm. configured this way because it'll lock up basically waiting for a response, and then it gets a new request, and you can't serve it, and you get these uh, circular dependencies. Uh, and if we thought circular dependencies in code were bad enough, just wait till you introduce the network, yeah. <laughs> right? You get all these race conditions and everything else. So that's actually been one of the reasons we've mostly stayed away from it from now and, and have, have uh, approached other, uh, other, or used other approaches. Uh, but I, I think what we're we're probably headed towards in the future is some sort of hybrid, not quite a centralized, you know, messaging system or MQ system or anything like that, and not quite every service can maintain its own list of subscriptions. Uh, there may be like smaller hubs that are sort of distributed into little clusters of services into related services, something like that. We haven't quite pinpointed that yet, but as far as I mean, we have 70 internal services. 
uh, and I think each one maintaining its own subscription state and, and mm. production of those events would be uh, very chatty and very hard to sort of profile given the current yeah. state of, of tooling. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, we haven't come as far as you have uh, with our infrastructure, but I can already see that those kind of <laughs> problems looming on the horizon. So it's good to kind of hear a little bit from you uh, uh, about you know how, how that, that 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 really happens and kind of uh, uh, what you told about your strategy of handling it. We so, actually. Yeah. yeah, we actually really love running into problems like this, right? So we know that if we're running into it, that there's a high probability that our customers are too. So uh, like, yes. our hesitancy is not so much around, like, can we solve the technical challenge? I definitely believe in my team and their ability to get around these types of things. But more, our hesitancy is, uh, where is the lack of tooling here? And, and how can we sort of figure out that problem at the same time and, and make this something that's generally available to people? Cool, thanks. I know that, uh, Lorinda, I know you're eager to talk a lot about webhooks, but since we're short on time, um, I'm going to cut you off there and just jump over to the last part of the podcast, uh, which is the news section. Thanks so much for your insights, uh, uh, for sharing all that, uh, John. Uh, so, but Lorinda, uh, I know you're eager to talk in general, so I'm going to let you do the news item first uh, 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 before we move on. So what, what's your API news item of the last three months? Wow, the last three months. Well, doesn't have to be. That's quite the scope. Uh, so actually, my my news item is probably not one you'll find in the press, but I think it's worth highlighting that John announced last week that they are no longer going to do the traffic and weather podcast. <laughs> oh no, is that true? Uh, that is that is uh, that is true. And so, so, so you I, think think I think that's sad. You, I, you know, you think, also, it's good sorry. news for us, John. It's good news for us because, you know, it's one more competitor out of the way. Man. Yeah, right. Yes. Uh, so, you know, you had a hard time coming up with news from the last three months if that's your top news item. But that was sort of our problem <laughs> with, with doing the show is that, you know, we, we always wanted to talk about current events in the API space and the cloud space. Uh, but... You know, looking back over the last year, there's been some big things that have happened. Obviously, you know the the swagger stuff and everything else, but a lot of it just doesn't change that much. Almost all of the topics that we tried to drum up for our last show were almost the exact same as the previous year, right? There was a lot of hypermedia stuff, and I'm looking at a post written 25 days ago called "API Versioning or Not." I mean, we're having the same conversations <laughs> over and over and over again, and so uh, you know, part of that, I think that played a little bit into our uh, inability to get excited about doing a new episode. So, uh, you know, at at, at uh, API Strat last week, we did another live episode, and we just decided, you know, I think this is a, this is a good bookend for the the, the podcast. Uh, Thirty episodes. Uh, if you go to trafficandweather.io, uh, you can't even listen to the old episodes because my podcast podcast host went out of business between us doing our last episode. <laughs> And no one complained. Not a single person complained about not being able to listen to the episodes. Oh, wow. So, I, you know, I think that's all we really needed to know about how popular the show was. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was, I think it was it, you know, certainly, you know, you have a solid base of fans, so I'm not going to reply to, you know, whether or not it was popular. But I think it's a good point that we... We do tend to circle around the same topics over and over again. I think that's true of software in general. I've been doing this for over 30 years, and I can tell you, you know, you hear the same record over and over and over again. Um, and it, 
while I think it's great that we all keep trying to explore different things, because we're not really solving some stuff, right? Uh, we keep talking about it because we don't really come up with brilliant solutions that last for a long time. Um, but I, I, I get your point that we get repetitive. I find that's true of conferences too. So, um, you know, I, I thought API Strat this year, or this past one in uh, Austin, was refreshing in that there were some other topics and there were some other people talking about different things. Like we're starting to, uh, we're starting to have more conversations about true documentation, not just API definitions and that kind of stuff. But, um, but I, I totally, and I think Ula and I have talked about this before. It's like you see this blog posts coming up that are the same as blog posts you read a year ago. And even the API monitoring conversations, you know, which we were having three years ago, you know, they're still sort of swirling around. So I get that. But we'll miss you on the podcast front. Well, yeah. you know, I th I'm, you know, I think we'll still do some, you know, some things like we'd love to do more live shows at conferences. Uh, you know, those are the most fun ones that we did anyway. Uh, I think it was just time to, you know, wrap up that specific brand and, and uh, a style of podcast. So uh, my voice, unfortunately, for you, all of you listeners, is not going away uh, anytime soon. And, <laughs> and I don't believe I've ever said no to the question, do you want to be on my podcast? So I probably will continue to show up in your podcast listeners as well, uh, mostly because I can't resist. But I think, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, although the topics, uh, you know, API versioning and hypermedia and definition formats and blah, 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 they're, they're, we've debated them for a long time. The people, there's always, there's new people coming in all the mm -hmm. time. For them, it's new. And I think, yeah. uh, and, and the, uh, there, there's a, um, I know you didn't mean it that way, uh, Lorinda, but uh, we don't want to be disrespectful of people that are new to the game. And I think we should be, uh, you know, um, uh, try to share because we do know a lot and we do have a lot of uh, experience and kind of been through the weeds with a lot of these things. And, and uh, I think uh, we still can help a lot of people on board and solve these problems. I think when, I mean, when we just debated these things the first time, there was really no one to go to and we kind of made up the answers. And over the time, we, you know, it evolved and we kind of came to those. So it's, it's, uh, I, but I, I totally agree with you saying that, you know, amongst us talking about API versioning maybe isn't going to kind of uh, make me super excited, but there is still a, a lot of people out there kind of just onboarding this. So it's, it's um, I guess it, it, there's still a need for these discussions, obviously. Uh, that's kind yeah, of I, I, yeah, I definitely don't, didn't mean to imply that there wasn't a need, but I do think I agree with John that, you know, we need to make room for some new voices too. Yeah, because yeah. the people who are struggling with these ideas are struggling with them because maybe we didn't. Our previous our yeah. previous blog posts and conversations about it didn't answer their question. Exactly. Uh, yeah. so. Somebody I, I read somewhere that uh, across Node.js the uh, the Node.js user base like 90% of Node developers have started with Node in the past year. It's basically wow. an entire community of newbie, newbies, which I, is sort of derogatory, but you know what I mean, yeah. of, of new new people to that community, right? And I, actually, pro probably it's probably like I don't know some high number for APIs too, right? Like people are just coming along to this; they didn't care about APIs, but somehow microservices resonated with them, which is a you know a, maybe a crazy distinction to make, but you know words matter and names matter, um, and so 
absolutely agree with you. Like there are new people, you know, coming in all the time. Uh, but uh, hopefully we can get new voices that are, I do. I think we'll do a better job of talking to them uh, as well, and that, that are also not uh, running entire companies and have no time left for podcasts. <laughs> Okay, thanks. Uh, great. Uh, uh, so, John, what's your news item? Uh, so, I'll go to, uh, let's see, I got two here. One is called Why DevOps is Burning Developers Out. Uh, I could answer that question. Uh, it's probably because you're doing it wrong. Um, okay. So, you know, DevOps is more about culture than tools. So, if your culture is burning people out, then... I guess you can blame DevOps for that if you want. Uh, the other the article I have up here is uh, Keith Casey from Clarify's uh, API Strategy Conference 2015 recap. So, uh, you know, you had a good overview of what happened last week. It was a, another really good conference. Uh, it's always good to get uh, sort of all high density of people who care about these problems in the same room and, and talking about sort of what's next and, and you know, where we want all this to go and, and what everyone's working on. So uh, you can check that out on the clarify.io slash blog. Awesome, thanks. Um, uh, one thing is that just there was an announcement today. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. I don't know when it was, but I saw it today. Uh, Mashape, I don't even know how, how to pronounce their name. It's Mashape or Mashape. Ma well, Mashape is partnering with uh, PAW, which is a, uh, a Mac-only uh, uh, API testing tool. Um, uh, I guess I thought that found that interesting uh, just, just because PAW's been around for a while. I don't know how how loyal following they have on the Mac. It, but it's interesting that it's a desktop tool. And, uh, uh, you know, being in the desktop tool business, we, we see a lot of challenges around having a desktop tool where everyone seems to be looking for SaaS or, or, or browser plugins. Um, so that, that was kind of uh, interesting and also interesting that they're kind of, the, you know, testing is being more and more as a part of uh, an offering of, of what API management uh, vendors are doing. So it's, it's, fun, it's funny that you said, so you have a desktop tool, like one of your tools is primarily on the desktop, right? Yes. And so you said you're, you people are always coming to you looking for SaaS, right? Well, the, the question we always we usually get is, do you have a SaaS version? And then, oh, okay, yeah. and, and then we're like, yeah. no, but we have a lot of stuff that you would, wouldn't be able to do in a SaaS version. And then you kind of, you know, go through the drill and say, oh, I get it. But that kind of initial... Uh, people are so used to consuming, or not people, but a certain group, target audience, is very used to consuming things in the cloud or as a browser yeah. plugin. So they're not even cons they don't want to download stuff. They will just sure. want to be able to run it from anywhere. And yeah, uh, right. so so that's uh, and they, it's the convenience factor. I don't think there there's anything uh, really bad about desktop. Actually, segueing into that story is, is I don't know if you looked at the new WordPress architecture that was launched. Yeah. Uh, so where they're actually that was building. News story. Oh, so that was where they're launching, where they have basically the whole WordPress.com is a REST API-based backend, and then they have a, a, a desktop client, which they which is a browser-based. I don't know if it's based on Atom or whatever, uh, um, uh, but it, but it's a, it's something you install locally. I was kind of surprised because that's kind of the opposite of what I've seen many other people doing, and it looked really nice and everything. So I think what, but at least what we see is, is that people look for the convenience of having a something in the cloud or in a browser sure. and not don't want to have to download and install. Not that that's hard, but it's, it's more of a cultural thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear that. If you want me to set up an affiliate program for you to send those people our way, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly do that. 
Okay, <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you are. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, but and as a, as 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 a very last new news item, this is totally unrelated, but I thought it was really cool. I just got it just before this meeting. Is that uh, Apple is as we speak uh, uploading Swift uh, to GitHub? So the Swift language is now officially open source. It's Apache licensed, and if you want to, oh. that's actually pretty cool. Uh, it's on uh, Swift.org and GitHub.com/apple. The funny yeah. thing about Git, my Twitter feed this morning is, you know, as this all rolled out, we we're basically getting live updates on like, uh-oh, GitHub.apple or GitHub.com/apple exists, and then five minutes later, looks like they've added a logo. Five minutes later, <laughs> looks like another repository has gone up. So, oh, wow. you know, all of human civilization. Apple civilization has led to this moment. To yeah. <laughs> no, I thought that was pretty cool. So, uh, yep. not related to APIs. Okay. Um, I think anything else? Anyone? All right. That's no. okay. So, thanks, uh, John. Thank you so much for joining. Awesome having you. Uh, great. Thanks for sharing everything, and it's great hearing your insights and all. Lorinda, as always, your your um, uh, a great addition to the show uh, and uh, thanks to everyone listening and if you want to get in touch it's apisuncensored.io it'll be on iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. Et there's something else I usually forget to say at the end, Lorinda, what's that? You always forget to tell people our email address. Which I don't remember. Which is APIs Uncensored. <laughs> I know, because you can't remember it. It's yeah. APIs Uncensored at smartbear.com. It's a really tough email address. I, I get why you have trouble with it. Thanks. Thanks for your support. So, uh, okay. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. All right. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>